Today I'm going to be preaching on honesty, and it would be rather remiss of me to not tell you where I got the, most of the source of this sermon from, otherwise I'd probably be dishonest with you, but pretending that all these are my original thoughts. In reality, I was uh, struggling with coming up with this sermon this last week. Sermon prep is a lot of work, and finally just decided that I'd buy a book on Amazon on honesty and read it, and it was very, very, very good. And so I'll tell you what that book is, and you can realize that I practically plagiarized everything that man wrote. But that's okay. See, in Christianity, we, we like to plagiarize truth. That's not, you know, bad. We like to share truth. So the book is called Dare to be True, Living in the Freedom of Complete Honesty by Mark Roberts. Dare to be True. Well, I'll start out by telling you a story of two students at Duke University who were taking an introductory chemistry course from a professor named Professor Bonk, Dr. Bonk. And they were particularly gifted students. They excelled in all of their tasks, all their assignments. They did very well in the class. And toward the end of the class, right before the last day where they, they went to take the final, they decided they would get a little bit lazy and not study that night for the final exam. And so they stayed up all night, and guess what they did, as most college students do? They partied. They drank. They got so drunk that they passed out, and they slept through all the next morning and straight through the final exam. Well, they woke up realizing their mistake and realizing that they'd fail the class if they didn't take that exam. So doing what most people do, they concocted a story. And they went to the professor and they told him, we're really, really sorry we missed the exam. We were, we'd gone out of town and we were driving back and we, we got a flat tire and we had this big mess and we weren't able to make it to the exam on time. Can we please, please take the take the test. And the professor would graciously said, yes, I'll let you take it tomorrow. So they showed up the next day, and what the professor did is he split them both into two different rooms and gave them an exam booklet. It consisted of two pages. On the first page was a question, a standard chemistry question that they could easily answer, and it was worth five points. So they filled it out, and then they switched over to the next page. There's only one more question on the test, and it said, for 95 points, which tire? Well, this story comes from a time before cell phones, so they didn't, weren't able to text each other. I don't know exactly what they decided to do or what they did. I'm guessing they were caught red-handed. You know, we laugh at this, and we laugh at what they did because, well, the professor had the ingenuity to figure it out and to call them on it, but in reality, our culture, our society is saturated in dishonesty. Is simply saturated in dishonesty. Isaiah 59, verse 14 says that truth stumbles in the public, public square and honesty finds no place there. Truth stumbles in the public square and honesty finds no place there. Now, this was written in around 700 BC, and this can be perfectly describing our day and age today. In fact, probably every age of history. And it's easy to think, why? When you think of a liar, 
we tend to automatically think of politicians, lawyers, ruthless businessmen, celebrities, you name it. <clears throat> but what about, what about us? What about the average Joe? Now, maybe you'd say in your heart, now hold on, David, wait a minute, I'm not a liar. Well, I'm not calling you a liar, but I would like to point out that the majority of us, many of us, perhaps not all of us in this room, habitually lie and don't think about it, and not necessarily very big and bad lies. You see, we've come up with a dichotomy in our culture between titles versus our actions. So I can tell someone, I think you're lying, and they'll go, oh, wait, you're calling me a liar? Well, I, in my American sentiments, I'm just saying you're lying. I'm not calling your entire identity a liar. But it's basic thing in our language that if you habitually do something, you are that thing. If you habitually go to work, you're an employee. If you habitually ride a motorcycle, you're a motorcyclist. If, if you habitually lie, then what does that make you? Now, it's hard to take that especially as Christians, but you know what? I will readily admit that I am a liar more often than I really want to be. I don't want to be one, but I tend to be one. I lie without really thinking about it quite often. First John one, First John 1 John 1.8 says that if we say we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. Now, that's defining sin as an all sin, but lying is a sin. And if we're saying we don't lie at all, the Scripture would say we're only fooling ourselves. You see, what these students did is really not much different than what we do on a daily basis. And most of the time, we don't really consciously plan it, but sometimes, if we really catch ourselves, we do. We tend to lie almost habitually for four reasons that I, I have listed here, and if you'd like to write them on the back of your bulletin to remember, I would encourage it. <clears throat> and these reasons are, first, to avoid consequences. This is what those two students did. They avoided the consequence of failing that class. And there's so many other things we avoid the consequences of by lying. To avoid consequences is the first. The second is to avoid difficult and awkward situations. And I'm going to give some examples of this in a minute, but I'll list these out first. So the second is to avoid difficult and awkward situations. The third is to cover up the fact that we don't actually know the truth or we don't like the truth. To cover up the fact that we don't know the truth or that we don't like the truth. And the fourth is to spin things to our advantage. Or in other words, you could say to make ourselves look good or to cheat people to our advantage. To spin things to our advantage. Now, if you don't believe me that, if you think that maybe you don't lie, perhaps you don't, praise God. But I'm going to give some examples here and let's see. Let's kind of give our, our, a self-test to ourselves of whether we lie without thinking about it. Perhaps you run into someone you haven't seen in a while. 
And you say, oh, it's so good to see you. I've been thinking a lot about you lately. No, no, really, have you been thinking a lot about them lately? Most likely not. Perhaps you have, but we tend to think mostly about ourselves, not that much about other people. Or you say, oh, I've been praying for you lately. Have you? Perhaps you do, praise God. I've been guilty of saying that before without having actually prayed for that person. Or I say, oh, I will pray for you, and then I don't pray for them. How about this one? And I do this to my wife a lot. I'm on the computer. She asks me to do something. I say, sure, just a minute. 20 minutes later, (laughs) a really long minute. How about an excuse for an unwanted invitation to something? Excuse because you don't want to go. Someone invites you out to lunch, and you simply want to go home and watch TV by yourself, but you don't want to say that. So what do you say? You come up with some sort of excuse. Oh, I have some family commitment. Yeah, by yourself at your TV. How about this? Rounding off numbers to make yourself look good. Pastors are guilty of this by rounding off their church membership upward. So in reality, maybe you have 130 members. Oh, we have two to 300 members. Rounding off your age. I did this a lot growing up. I wanted to seem older than I actually was. So even though I was only two months into my 16th year, I was 17, by golly. Or rounding off your income. I only make 22000 a year, but I rounded up to 30000 You know, There's so many examples of rounding that you can think of. How about this? When the doctor asks you, asks you how often do you exercise? I've I've done that before. Oh yeah, I work out every so you know I go to the gym. No, I don't. This is common. This is very prolific. Resume writing. When you write your resume, there have been so many situations of people having to resign from jobs because they found out that they lied on the resume. In fact, they estimate that practically majority of the resumes out there have some sort of lie on it. Even though maybe we don't outright lie on a resume, sometimes those incidental assignments in our jobs become these major responsibilities. Although I only maybe had that assignment for some brief couple days, but now it was a major responsibility. Or some modest accomplishment becomes my unparalleled triumph. Here's another excuse. Here's another one, excusing tardiness. When you show up to a meeting late, when you show up to work late, what do you say? We all practically almost always blame it on traffic, but you know what? In reality, we, are, we know how traffic works. We know when rush hour is. We know how to allot time to get to places on time. So in reality, it's not really traffic. It's the fact that we just didn't give ourselves time to get there on time. Excusing tardiness, we, we tend to lie. Perhaps you can get a discount by lying about your age. Here's one, since this is just the season of taxes, reporting your income to the IRS. Do you really report all of your income? I hope we all do, but sometimes we justify it. Oh, it's government, oh, it's the IRS, oh, they're corrupt, oh. But are you lying to them? You see, there's so many situations, and I'm sure you could think of so many more, in which we just simply lie without thinking about it. 
Now, I'll admit to a couple situations in which I tend to lie a lot. One is at the barber. Barbers like to talk. They like to ask questions. Now, I'm a missionary going to Papua New Guinea to translate the Bible, but for some reason I start imagining that this sweet barber lady is this hardcore militant atheist who hates Christians and hates Bible translation and hates everything I stand for. So if I really tell her what I actually do, I'm going to get this blasting. No, it... No. Most likely they're going to go, oh, hmm, that's interesting, if they don't actually like it. But I tend to have made up stories about what I actually do when I'm at the barber. And I'm a missionary, for heaven's sake. I lie. When I was in the military over a decade ago, I worked on fighter jets, and we habitually cut corners in our maintenance and signed on the forms that we had done specific maintenance actions on those jets, even though we really hadn't technically done them. Or we had cut corners and really, though we had done part of it, we didn't do the whole maintenance. I lied. And everyone justifies their lies. They say, well, everyone does it. In fact, we've even invented this concept in our language that I just don't understand how on earth we can justify it, but we call them white lies. <laughs> how on earth does white lies, is white lies not a lie? Because we say, well, it's just kind of stretching the truth a little, and it's not really harming anyone. Well, I, I disagree, and I'll tell you why, but... White lies are persistent in our culture. We think that we can just constantly make up these little truth stretches, and we call, them, we call it also spin in our culture. We spin. There's spin doctors for politicians who make them look good. They twist the truth just enough. You see, advertisers spin their products. Yeah, I don't even need to go there. There's commercials out there that... Yeah. You just know that... The, what they're advertising is not actually the result of that product. Coaches tend to spin their losses. They explain it away as, oh, we just weren't in the game enough. Or Students spin their low grades. Spouses spin their marital messes or their marital fights. In fact, most marital fights is this big act of circular spinning where each spouse is portraying themselves as totally perfect in the way they were presenting themselves in that fight. They spin it, and they lie about what, how they came across in order to look good. Corporate executives spin their bottom lines, and employees spin their mistakes. Now, what does the Bible say about spin? Well, I've got an answer, <laughs> I hope. Let's look to actually the author of spin, the author of lies, and we all know who that is, Satan himself. So let's open up to Genesis 3, and we're going to look at the original lie. The original spin. And see how Satan did it. Genesis 3. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. That word crafty, it can mean tricky, whatever you, you get it, you get the point. 
And he said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now we all know what happened after that. She took of the fruit and ate it. And she brought, not just she, her and Adam, sorry. Both of them brought sin and death upon mankind, all their posterity, straight down to us. Well, what did Satan do here? You know what? He didn't outright, outright lie, but he did. You see, he was white lying. He was spinning. If you look at what he said, he said the first thing was just this innocent question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's nothing wrong with that question. He just asked, right? But you already see he's twisting the truth. He's getting them to doubt. Then he says, when she says that God said we would surely die if we ate of it, he says, well, you will not surely die. Well, technically that's true because when they sinned, they didn't actually die at that moment. God was speaking of death that came into mankind, mortality, and the eventuality, the surety of their death. But technically, they didn't die right when they ate the fruit. So was Satan, was, that a, was he stretching it? Was he spinning it? Yeah, I think he was. And then Satan says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, technically true again, because... By eating of that fruit, it gave them the knowledge of good and evil. And God knows good and evil, so technically you're like God because you know good and evil. So here again, he's spinning the truth. He's spinning it to his advantage to deceive them. They weren't outright lies, but they were what we would call white lies or spin. And guess what Jesus says about Satan and what he did here? If you turn to John 8... John 8, verse 44. Here's God in flesh declaring what Satan did. You are from your father the devil, he declared, he declared to the Pharisees, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus just called Satan a murderer and a liar, referring to from the beginning, which he's referring to this event in Genesis. Now, was Satan a murderer? Did he kill Adam and Eve outright? No, he didn't, technically, but he brought death upon mankind. God calls that murder. And then he calls him a liar and the father of lies. Well, we just looked at what Satan did there. They were spin, they were white lies, but they were not what we would consider in our culture outright lies. But Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies. What he did was lying. There is no such thing as a white lie in Scripture. When you're dishonest, you're lying. 
A lie is a lie no matter how small, <laughs> as Dr. Seuss maybe would say. So what happened when Adam and Eve were deceived by Satan? What did he do with his spin? What does spin do? What, is white, what do white lies do? Well, first, they breed suspicion. They bred suspicion in Adam and Eve. It damages trust. Because they sin, God could no longer trust them and they undermine that relationship between them and God. And that's what spin and white lies do to this day. Though they might not have immediate consequences when you, do a white, when you utter a white lie, over time it breeds suspicion because people start to pick up on it. It damages their trust and it undermines the relationship. Mark Roberts in his book says that the wages of spin, not sin, spin, are insidious, are erosive. They don't seem to harm at, at the very beginning. They seem subtle, but over time they erode away and they destroy trust. They destroy relationships. Proverbs 12, verse 22 declares that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Abomination. This word, this Hebrew word, toiva, it's the strongest possible word that they could use to describe something that's abhorrent and disgusting. If you look into the Old Testament scriptures, you can find all the things that God calls an abomination, and there's some pretty bad stuff in there, and lying is included. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. He hates it. He hates dishonesty. So what is the remedy? Well, obviously I hope you already know that God, the author of truth, Christ, is the remedy to dishonesty. Now I'm going to read some verses through here, and you don't need to turn to all of them because I'll be going rather rapidly, but you can write down the references if you'd like. What is God's character with regards to truth? Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, says that He is the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Isaiah 45, 19 declares, I, the Lord, Speak the truth, and I declare what is right. God cannot lie, Scripture declares. He cannot lie. He's not a man that he can lie. John 1.14 declares about Jesus that we beheld him, and we, he was full of grace and truth. Now we get this idea, some intellectuals, including myself in the past, have gotten this idea that truth is this abstract ideal, this list of doctrines, this list of factual truths. Yes, well, technically yes, but Jesus wasn't full of perfect doctrine. He was full of truth, truthfulness. He was honest always. He emanated truth. He always declared what he knew of God, and he knew everything of God. He's God. He was always declaring the truth, and everyone around him was not everyone, but most everyone around him was hating him for speaking the truth. He was full of truth. He was always telling the truth.
John 4, verse 23, declares that we need to worship God, that God desires us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Again, people will interpret that as you worship God with perfect doctrine, perfect theology. No, that's not what it's saying. When it says in truth, in the Greek it means in truthfulness, by being honest, by being truthful. We worship him by being perfectly honest. Psalm 51, verse 6 declares, God delights in truth in our inward being. In our inward being, not just on our lips, in our innermost being, he delights in truth. He's saying that God delights when we are abiding in perfect honesty, when we are always honest, when we are just living honesty. Psalm 15, verse 2 says, Those who speak the truth will dwell with God. Those who speak the truth will dwell with God forever in his courts. And here comes the most blunt, explicit passage in Scripture that we can probably find concerning what we should do. Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, Put away falsehood and speak the truth to your neighbor. Put away falsehood and speak the truth to your neighbor. Now, whenever Scripture says to your neighbor, it's not talking about to your next-door neighbors. It's talking about to everyone you know, (laughs) to all the mankind around you. Speak the truth. Put away falsehood. Speak the truth. So the reason that we should tell the truth is because we're commanded to. And the reason we're commanded to is God knows what the wages of lying does, he knows the power and freedom of truth. Scripture declares that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Again, knowing the truth, yes, it's understanding the truth of God and factual knowledge about him, but it's also knowing truthfulness. And knowing truthfulness sets us free. There's freedom in being truthful. There's freedom in being honest. Now, certainly there are going to be times where being honest is difficult and generates consequences that we don't like. But God doesn't care. He wants us to endure that. Because by enduring those consequences, it, it refines us. It makes us more honest. So let me clarify what telling the truth actually looks like. Because there seems to be the strange notion, again, in our culture, that if you're telling the truth and being honest, you're basically being blunt and speaking whatever comes to the top of your mind. There's a movie called The Invention of Lying, in which a British comedian depicts a world in which there's no such thing as lying. No one's ever lied before. It's actually kind of a funny movie, if you want to watch it. But... Guess what the worldly definition of being honest is? Being rude. Just speaking whatever comes to the top of your mind. So you have these people walking around just commenting on whatever they think of, like, oh, you look so ugly today. And then the other person's like, oh, thank you. Like, and they just take it. You know, Everyone seems to take it because no one knows what a lie is. And then all of a sudden one man gets this revelation that you can actually lie and he deceives the whole world. It's a weird movie. It's interesting, but it it depicts 
the worldly notion of lying, and then comedians capitalize on this notion. Just being blunt and speaking the truth. Yeah, I'm just being honest. Well, then what does that produce? It produces a bunch of truth tyrants who walk around bonking people on the head with their rudeness. They're not being honest. And then they say, oh, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. Oh, yeah, sure, give me a break. No. And then they say, well, don't shoot the messenger. Well, don't pretend to be the messenger when no one sent you. You're just speaking your rude mind. Ephesians 4, verse 15 says, Speak the truth in love. Now, I've heard people interpret this as speaking the truth is love. So they go around bonking people on the head with their bluntness and they say, I'm loving you by speaking the truth. No. What in love means is speaking the truth. A truth that's saturated in love. You're, you're loving that person. You're, you're expressing love in the way you speak truth. Second Timothy 2.24 says that God's servants must be kind to everyone. This is the biblical definition of honesty I'm giving you. It has nothing to do with bluntness. It has everything to do with kindness and love. 1 Peter 3.16 says that we are to declare the truth, we are to give an answer for our faith with gentleness and respect. So when someone asks you about your faith, it would be lying to not tell them, to not give them a reason. Yet when you give that reason, when you declare the truth that is in you, you're supposed to be gentle and respectful. Now gentleness is not wimpishness. <laughs> Some people think that being gentle is this wimpishness. It's not. Being gentle, you can be totally strong, and yet you don't carry a stick. You don't use your strength to bludgeon people with truth. You put the stick down, and in gentleness, with a Christ-like spirit, you speak the truth. First John 3.18 says that we need to love through our deeds, which is our actions, and in truth, in truthfulness. We love by being truthful. So that's the biblical definition of being truthful, being honest. It has nothing to do with being blunt. So let's look before I close at some difficult examples because I've given you some of the surface level examples of dishonesty that, yeah, we all look at and go, well, yeah, I've done that before. I do that consistently well. But there are actually some situations in which being honest is extremely difficult and for a good reason. So let's consider a few of them. Let's say that a parent finds out that they have a life-threatening disease and they're dying and they have young children. What do they say to their children who don't really have a, a concept of death? How do you present that? Now, I'm not going to give you answers to these necessarily. I want you to think about it. How do you be, how do you be honest in difficult situations like that? Or how about this example? A relative commits suicide. 
how do you tell the world, how do you tell your friends what happened? Do you spin it and deny it? Do you tell people what, or do you tell people what happened? We've all are aware of the, a, a difficult situation in which you may get fired by telling the truth, and this has happened over and over and over again. That's a difficult situation, but you know what? I, this is one I would like to offer an answer on. If you, if you are in, in a job in which your boss is requiring you to lie to keep your job, trust God, tell the truth, you'll lose your job, and God will help you find another job. God will honor your truthfulness. You don't need to be in a job in which you're forced to lie. It's just wrong. We trust God. God provides for everything. And if we lose our job, he'll provide a job. Because he honors truthfulness. For all you know, if you lie and continue to lie, you may help the company go bankrupt and lose your job anyway. Some people may ask, well, what about pretending? Is pretending a lie? Is fiction a lie? <clears throat> no. As long as everyone knows what the rules of the game are, it's not lying. There's a good place for fiction. There's a good place for pretending. But if someone doesn't know you're pretending, you're, you're lying to them. They need to be aware of it. There's situations, and we all maybe do this, but it's difficult because we want to save face. When people ask us a question about some sort of factual thing, and we really honestly don't know the answer, but we just start spouting off what we think the answer is. We just start talking, blah, blah, blah. Someone asks for directions to some place, and you don't actually know the real directions, but you give them a vague direction because you don't want to give them nothing. Those difficult situations in which if we actually reveal that we don't know something, we think that that's going to be bad and that's going to make us look bad. You know, it's really not that bad being honest and simply saying, I don't know. I don't know. When you don't actually know, (laughs) just tell them I don't know. People actually will respect that and say, well, thank you for not giving me, misleading me. Then there's the ultimate example which comes up, and this is probably going to be extremely rare that most of us in here will never ever experience, but a situation in which you have to lie to save someone's life, to save your own life. Corrie ten Boom is a classic example of this in Nazi Germany in which she was hiding Jews in her house, and the Nazis came to the door and asked, are you hiding Jews in your house? And she was so convinced that she must always speak the truth that she told them yes. They arrested, they took those Jews into captivity. They also took Corey and her sister, and they suffered greatly. But what happened is that next day or something like that, the, there was a raid in that particular camp, and the, the Jews that had been captured by, because she told the truth were freed, were set free. God honored that truthfulness. Now, is that going to always be the case in which you tell the truth and the person doesn't die. No, I don't know. I don't know. Is it right to tell the truth, to, to lie, to protect someone's life? Well, there have been Christian theologians who've said yes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of them. 
and he makes good arguments why. Then there's others who make good arguments that you shouldn't lie. I don't know the answer to that one, but that is such a rare occurrence, that is such a rare example that I don't think I really have to worry about that right now. If I come to that situation, I will trust what God is speaking to my heart in that moment. But I had to throw out that example because it comes up. We need to consider it. So with some of those examples examined, I want us to examine our hearts right now and to make a commitment, if you're willing, to tell the truth, to practice honesty. Especially this next week, if you'll commit to looking at your behavior and your actions, looking at the way you plan and plot for perhaps telling lies when you really don't think about it, you may catch yourself in the moment realizing, whoa, I'm about to lie. I'm about to say something that's not true. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart. I encourage you. I greatly encourage you. Mark Roberts in this book says, in the most blunt terms as possible, and I agree with him, that lying is for cowards. You're a coward if you lie because you're afraid of the consequences. You're afraid of something. We should never, ever resort to lying. Otherwise, we're cowards, he says. So I ask you, as a Christian brother, I I almost beg you to practice honesty. In the last couple of weeks when I knew I was going to be preaching on honesty, the Lord was challenging me over and over and over again on things that I've been dishonest on, dishonest in. A couple of years back, I was really, really, really trying to practice honesty more because I really had some habitual tendencies of lying, and I really did gain some ground, but then I just let it slip because I figured, well, it's not that big a deal. And in coming... To prepare for this sermon, I realized that I can't lie anymore. I can't do this anymore. I can't be like this anymore. I can't be deceptive. God hates it. He hates it when I do that. And I don't want to lie anymore. So we're going to take a moment of silence right now to just talk to God, reflect, let him challenge your heart, and then I'll pray. God, you desire truth in our innermost being. You desire honest lips, Lord, and you hate it when we lie. God, we confess to you the times that we have lied, the times that we have simply let truth slip away. Holy Spirit, I invite you into into this church right now. I invite you to rest upon us, Lord. And throughout this next week and further on, Lord, to challenge us to be more honest. Lord, I confess to you the lies I have uttered. I confess to you the habit of lying that I have gotten myself into, Lord. And I ask that you would hear from heaven. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us. Cleanse, Lord.
cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, from here on out, enable us by the power of your Spirit, because it's only through you that we can do this, to live a life full of truth and honesty. We trust you for this. We thank you for this. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Let's stand, stand again and uh, join together. In. I hope today that I haven't been too blunt or made you feel bad. I simply am calling us to something higher, to truthfulness, to truthful living. Forgive me if I sounded too blunt, but I simply, I, just, I desire truth. I do. As we close, just, I love this benediction. Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. 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 Go this week and be honest.